0: Okay, so the last few weeks, um, we've had some very encouraging classes, right? Uh, We've had four weeks of judgment, four weeks of Israel's sin, four weeks of God's angry and it's about to really hurt. And Hosea has used some very graphic language to explain Israel's sin, He's repeated himself several times with the same things over and over and over again. Israel, you're unfaithful. You're a harlot. You've turned away from me. You've gone deep into depravity. You're the new Sodom and you're the new Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy you. You're in trouble. And I told you in the very first class that Hosea is going to paint a very black, dark background. And then in front of that, he's going to use that to contrast the love of God. Well, I have good news. This morning is the contrast. If you look on your handout, by the way, there are handouts in the back. Um, I've titled this class, A Loving Father. And he's going to transition here a little bit. And he's going to talk and speak from his heart about Israel and who Israel is and what Yahweh actually feels about Israel. And so it's a nice little reprieve from multiple weeks of judgment. So we're in Hosea 11. We're going to be doing verses 1 through 11. Uh, I know in your NASB the verse 12 is there. It actually goes with chapter 12, so we'll leave that for next week. So we'll go 1 through 11. Let's begin with chapter 11, verse 1. He says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. This brings us to our very first point on your little handout. Yahweh's loving acts remembered. He says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. He begins this chapter not with a declaration of judgment. Not with saying why he's angry at Israel, but he begins with, I loved him. And Yahweh's love for Israel has been kind of this undercurrent throughout the entire book. All the way back to the very first chapter when he depicted his relationship with Israel as a marriage. Remember the marriage with Gomer? And Hosea was, the, was playing the part of God in this illustration. And he was the faithful husband who loved his wife and remained committed to his spouse in chapter 2, we found out that Hosea was hurt and betrayed multiple times, that Gomer kept running off with her other lovers, spurning him and ignoring Hosea. He actually had to build walls in to try to keep her from going away. He said, I'm going to build walls, I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns so you can't get back to your other lovers. And in chapter 3, it reaches the kind of the pinnacle of their relationship, and Hosea, uh, excuse me, Gomer has gone so far into her sin that she is now a slave and selling herself in prostitution. And Yahweh tells her, to go and love her again. Go love her again. Verse 3 of chapter 3, Hosea goes and he buys his wife. And he purchases his own wife. He loved her again. Hosea's pain and heartache over his unfaithful spouse was a perfect illustration of Yahweh's heartache over the nation of Israel. Hosea got to experience firsthand what God felt every time Israel ran off to her other lovers. But here in Hosea 11, verse 1, he's not depicting Israel as his spouse. Instead, he's picturing Israel as a youth. The term here, youth can refer to an infant, it can refer to a small child, or it can refer to a teenager, someone all the way up into their 20s. It just refers to a young person. Here, Yahweh is pictured as the parent of a wayward child, a child that has repeatedly spurned the love and the care of his parents. And he points back to when Israel first began its relationship with Yahweh in Egypt. Notice verse 1 again. He says, And out of Egypt I called my son. That, famil- uh, that famil- familial relationship is further described. Yahweh says, Israel is my son. This isn't new. Israel has been called God's son before. Um, would someone like to read Exodus 4? Verse 22, Joey. And actually do 22 and 23. And then Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. And someone raise their hand in the back. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Go ahead, Joey. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Okay, thank you. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. There you go, and that's speaking to Israel. And Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Again, There he actually says, I am the father to Israel. Israel is my son. He casts this relationship in terms that everybody can understand. We all have a father. Many of you have children. Everybody gets this relationship. It's a love relationship. Yahweh loves Israel the way a father loves his son. It's unconditional. You don't love your kids when they earn it. Or you don't love your kids because they earned it. Even in the midst of rebellion or failure. It's not a love that's based on performance or merit. Yahweh's love for Israel wasn't based on Israel. It wasn't based on Israel's merit or what Israel had done. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Love them purely because he wanted to love them and that love was demonstrated in delivering them from Egypt and taking them into the wilderness and then ultimately bringing them into the promised land. That's what the verse means. Pretty straightforward, right? Pretty easy, right? No controversy here whatsoever. But this is our first interpretive challenge. This verse is quoted in the New Testament. Anybody know where it's quoted? Anybody remember? Out of Egypt I have called my son. Where have you heard that before? Matthew. Turn over to Matthew 2. Matthew 2, we're just going to read 13 through 15, just so we can get some context. Starting in verse 13 Now when they had gone behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said get up take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt He remained there until the death of Herod This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Some people claim that Matthew is providing a fuller explanation of Hosea chapter 11. That he's giving more information that Hosea intended but just didn't convey. That Hosea 11 is actually a messianic text that is talking about the Messiah. And they point to this verse and they say Hosea 11 is not just Israel, it's talking about Jesus. Here's the problem. That's an interpretation of Hosea that's not based on what Hosea actually wrote. That is to say, you cannot reach that conclusion without using the information in Matthew 2. If you just go and read Hosea chapter Hosea, the book of Hosea, you would not come to the conclusion that Hosea 11:1 is talking about Jesus. You wouldn't reach that conclusion. So is Hosea 11 speaking about the coming Messiah? Let me ask it this way. When Hosea was writing, did he intend his readers to read Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, and from that understand that the Messiah would flee Israel to Egypt and then return back again to Israel? Is that the message Hosea was trying to convey in Hosea 11? Any thoughts on that? Were Hosea's first readers supposed to view Hosea 11:1 as a messianic prophecy? I have a couple of people shaking their head, no, and I would agree, no. He wrote Hosea 11 in a specific context for a specific reason. He wrote it in light of the coming judgment on the nation of Assyria that would be brought by Assyria, and he even defines the phrase "my son." My son, here in Hosea 11, is not referring to Jesus. The context says it's referring to who? Israel. He actually says, Israel is my son. To say that Israel is Jesus, or Hosea intends to point to Jesus by the term Israel, is to read something into the text that's not actually there. That's a superimposed definition the nation of Israel had already been referred to as Yahweh's son. There's no trouble in understanding it in that way. And there is nothing in the book of Hosea that would lead a person to believe chapter 11 is discussing the Messiah simply by using the term, my son. But when you read Matthew 2, it does sound like that's what he's saying. It sounds like he's using it in that way. And the key point of contention here is in Matthew 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The key word here is fulfill. What does Matthew mean here when he says this fulfills what Hosea wrote? Some claim that Jesus' flight to and from Egypt was a direct and literal fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. That Hosea 11.1 prophesies that Jesus would leave Egypt, or leave Israel, go to Egypt, and come back. And Matthew 2 is saying this is a direct, literal fulfillment. So let's look at this word, fulfill. It's used 90 times throughout the New Testament. 90 times. Roughly 10 times it refers to direct literal fulfillment. So 10 out of 90, it refers to a direct literal fulfillment. Case in point, Matthew 8, verse 16. He actually cites Isaiah 53, 4. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Isaiah 53 is talking about who? The Messiah. Jesus is who? The Messiah. Context fits. This is direct, literal fulfillment. Or Matthew 27, 9 and 10. I'm not going to read those two. But it says Jesus literally fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would enter in riding a donkey. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. Direct, literal fulfillment. Ten out of ninety times, that's how this word is used. But what about the other eighty times this word is used? It does not refer to direct, literal fulfillment, and Matthew 2.15 is one of those cases. This is not direct, literal fulfillment. Matthew is using the historical events in the history of Israel and relating them to the life of Christ to demonstrate, one, that Christ is the great king, he is the promised king, the Messiah, and two, that Jesus is the ideal Israelite. Dr. Michael Vlock calls this corporate representation. Here's what he said. Because Jesus is the ultimate and ideal Israelite, Matthew wants to show his readers that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. To do that, Matthew connected events in Israel's history with events in Jesus' life. For Matthew, the fact that both Israel and Jesus came out of Egypt was not an accident or a coincidence. God intended this correspondence. Matthew wanted to prove that Jesus was the coming king of the Jews, the promised Messiah. And this correspondence between the the exodus from Egypt and the Messiah is one that has been used before. He's not coming up with something new. Moses wrote about the coming Messiah. And he connected him to the exodus from uh, Egypt. Numbers 24, verse 7, speaking of Israel and its future king. It said, God brings him, that would be the king, out of Egypt He is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with arrows. The Messiah there is pictured as coming out of Egypt with Israel. Dr. Block again. Thus, even before Hosea wrote Hosea 11.1, Numbers 23 and 24 connected Israel as a whole who came out of Egypt with the king of Israel, who also would come out of Egypt. Matthew merely points back to Hosea 11 as a demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah, the king, the ideal Israelite. He's not adding new information to Hosea 11, he's not changing the meaning of Hosea 11, he's not reinterpreting Hosea 11. Hosea 11 has one meaning. Out of Egypt, God called Israel, and he delivered them. And Matthew relates that to the life of Christ. I know that it sounds very confusing. Are there any questions on that? Is, is everyone thoroughly lost and confused now? No questions. Okay, back to Hosea 11. Yahweh says that he loved Israel and that love is illustrated in the familial relation of a father to a son and demonstrated in Yahweh delivering Israel from Egypt. So the question is how did Israel respond to this love? God demonstrates his love for them. What did they do in return? Verse 2 The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. So, the first question we need to ask is when he says, The more they called, who is it that did the calling here? Who is the they that called? Well, some have said this describes the desires of the people of Israel. That the they who is calling is Israel calling, wanting to go back to Egypt. Well, Israel did complain a lot in the wilderness, and some of those complaints were wanting to go back to Egypt. But if you understand it that way, Hosea 11.2, you could read it this way. The more Israel called to Egypt, the more they went from Egypt. Not only does it not make sense, but it doesn't seem to fit with Hosea's ultimate point. How does them wanting to go back to Egypt contribute to our understanding of Yahweh's love for Israel? I think a better understanding of verse 2 refers to the prophets of Israel. The more the prophets called to Israel, the more Israel went from them. And that fits with the context. Yahweh said, Yahweh said to call Israel out of Egypt, and the implication is he is calling them to himself. And the mouthpiece of Yahweh is his prophets, or are his prophets. His prophets are the one who are doing the calling. And the more the prophets go to Israel and call them to return to Yahweh to embrace the love and the affection of Yahweh, the more the nation of Israel spurned Yahweh and turned from him. They rejected the prophets. We're not going to read it. 2 Kings 17, 13-15 describes them continually rejecting the prophets over and over and over again. Nehemiah 9, verse 30. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. They wouldn't listen. They didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't hear the voice of Yahweh. They didn't return to Him. Instead, verse 2, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense. Their hearts were Continually hardened. Instead of turning to Yahweh, they turned and they sacrificed to false gods. Gods that they had made. Hosea chapter 2 verse 13. says that Israel used to offer sacrifices to them, that would be the Baals, and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me. She forgot Yahweh. Hosea 13 verses 1 and 2. When Ephraim spoke, there was a trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. But through Baal, he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. The calves, of course, would be the golden calves Jeroboam set up from Joshua, through Judges, through Samuel, through through the kings, the history of Israel proves that they ignored the prophets. Jesus in Matthew 23 said they killed the prophets. Yahweh's kindness, his love, his affection towards Israel was spurned and ignored. This was dastardly. And yet, Yahweh continued to demonstrate his love for them. Even after the Exodus. Look at verse 3. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, again, is just a reference to the northern kingdom. It's the largest tribe. Yahweh here is speaking through Hosea. He says, yet it was I. This is actually a pretty dramatic emphasis here. If you wanted to translate that literally, it would say, but I. I taught Ephraim to walk. The idea is, I did all this for you, not Baal. I'm caring for you, and you are turning to Baal. This is a father who raised a small child, reared and trained, fed, clothed, and loved that child, only to have that child get older and say, I don't know who you are. You're nothing to me. It was Yahweh who cared for them. It was Yahweh who provided for them. Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Deuteronomy 1, verse 31, he actually relates it this way. He says, And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place, carried Israel like a son, like a child. Verse 3 again, he says, Hosea 11, he says, I took them in my arms. This can going sound obvious. The term arm here refers to the forearm. But it can also refer to the space in between your shoulders. So, be your chest, your bosom. The same term is used in Isaiah 40, verse 11. And I think this will help you see this. Speaking of Yahweh, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. It's a picture of Yahweh picking up the small child Holding it close and gently caring and carrying it where he wants it. Do you hear the intimacy, the compassion, the love? Verse 3 again, I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. They gave all the credit to Baal. Hosea 2:8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And when we talked about Hosea 2, we talked about this wasn't just pure ignorance. It's not that they didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the information. This was willful, intentional ignorance. Hosea 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why? Because you don't know? No, because you have rejected knowledge. This was willful. They knew that Yahweh was the only God. They knew that Yahweh had promised to be the one who would provide for them and care for them. The Mosaic Law even said that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. For them to ignore Yahweh, for them to claim that it was Baal providing for them was sheer rebellion. Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. All of the blessing, all of the gold, the silver, the new wine, the grain, everything that they had received came directly from Yahweh. It was a sign of Yahweh's love and affection for them. And they didn't give him so much as a single word of thanks. Much less obedience. Verse 4. I led them with the cords of a man with the bonds of love. The cords of a man here, you might say the fetters of a man. The term refers to fetters or cords of a rope that are used to bind and restrain. Here, these are the cords of of a man. You might say it another way, I led them in a humane way. I led them with compassion. I was caring towards them. I treated them kindly, despite their rebellion. I was compassionate toward this wicked and obstinate people. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, he says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you, I have seized you and dragged you with loving kindness. Carried you off with loving kindness. The false gods that Israel worshipped didn't do that. Moloch demanded you sacrifice your kids just to make them happy. Yahweh didn't demand their affection with threats of violence. If you don't love me, I'm going to do this. He didn't try to attract their affection by scaring them. He tried to attract their affection by being affectionate and loving towards them. Verse 4 again, And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. He changes the metaphor here. He goes from a parent to a farmer. He says to lift a yoke, being one who lifts the yoke. The yoke was the, the big object they put on the shoulders of a, an ox, so the ox could pull the load. This pictures Yahweh, looking at Israel as a prized animal. favored animal and the animal has been pulling this burden all day long and so the farmer comes out and he picks the load up off the animal and relieves the animal and allows the animal to eat he lifts it because he's a grateful farmer and he loves the animal and he wants the animal to be able to eat without hindrance and that yoke would be a major hindrance to eating But this verse does provide a little bit of a challenge because he mixes his metaphors here. He says he lifts the yoke from their jaws. Well, yokes don't go on your jaw. They go on the shoulders. And this has led some, if you have an NIV, you might see it says infants or cheek. Cheek. He said when the yoke is on and the animal goes to eat, the yoke will fall down onto their jaw. That's good. I like that. Good. Well, the NIV looks at this and says there's no way this could work. That yoke can't be the correct word. And so, yoke must be a different word, and they change one of the vowels in the word and they turn it into infant. And cheek, well, they can't leave it as cheek, so they change that, or I'm sorry, jaw, they can't leave it as jaw, so they change the word to cheek, speaking of the face. This is just changing the text because they don't understand what the text is talking about. And so they try to find a different word that would fit better. And they just assume there's a variant there when there's not. But both yoke and jaw... Um, have a context, and the context is judgment. Uh, yoke is used in Jeremiah 27 verse eight. Uh, the judgment of Babylon coming to Judah is described as a yoke. He says of the king of Babylon and which will not put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. It 's a description of judgment. You can find that also in Jeremiah 2.20, Jeremiah 5.5, 5, Jeremiah 28.2. Jaw is used often in judgment. Anybody know what, how it's used? Ezekiel 38, verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaw. I'll lead you away by hooking you like a fish and dragging you off. Both of these refer to Judgment. Both hook and jaw. The point here is it is Yahweh who can deliver them from judgment. It's Yahweh who's their helper, not Baal. And in both cases, the removal of the yoke and the hook and the jaw would be necessary for the animal to eat. Last phrase of verse 4, he says, And I bent down and I fed them. This isn't I poured a whole bunch of food in a bucket and I said, here you go, and I walked off. It actually focuses, focuses in on the act. He fed every bite, lovingly, caringly provided for. Yahweh gave them everything. He cared for them. He poured out his love and his mercy upon them, as a father does for a small child. Last few weeks, we've been looking at Hosea, and it's been nothing but his judgment, 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 judgment. And like I told you at the beginning, all of that was so he can get to this point and turn around and show you the love of Yahweh. You have to see the wickedness of sin, you have to see sin as being detestable and horrible. You have to see it as being an affront to God, as an offense to his person. Because as soon as you recognize your own sin, as soon as you see your own heart for what it is, that you, like Israel, have spurned him a million times. You've rejected him a billion times. And yet Yahweh loves you anyway. And he continually loves you, despite your sin, despite your rebellion. He loves you anyway. And he provided his son that he would die for you, so that you could be reconciled back to him, so that you could turn to him, as Jesus said, and call him Abba Father. If the last four weeks didn't remind you of the person you look at in the mirror every morning, it should have. And this will remind you of the God that you serve. He's a faithful, loving father. But the love of a parent isn't blind, if it's true love. If you truly love your children, you don't allow them to run off and just do whatever they want, do you? George Zimmick in his commentary, relays the words of one parent to a rebellious child. And the parent turned to the rebellious child and said, I love you. Please don't make me do what love demands. God's love requires him to deal with their sin. This is the second point in your handout. Yahweh's loving discipline described. Look at verse 5. They will return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. Because they refuse to return to me. Once again, depending on what translation you have, you'll have something different. NLT and the NET both say Ephraim will return to Egypt. First of all, Ephraim is not in the Hebrew text, that's their interpretation. NIV turns this verse into a question, and that question implies that Israel will return. Um, All of these translations get that from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which leaves off the negative, not. But I think the Hebrew is pretty clear. It says he will not return. Actually, it's emphatic. He will never return. Israel as a nation will never again return back to Egypt and be in bondage. Instead, this verse says, uh, Egypt will, excuse me, Israel will go to the land of Assyria. Notice he says, Assyria, he will be their king. Assyria will be the source of judgment. And again, we've discussed this numerous times. Uh, You can read about that 2 Kings 17, 3 through 6, where Assyria comes in and wipes out the nation. I'll just read verse 6. In the sixth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile. Why did God bring this judgment on Israel? Why did he bring Assyria in? Verse 5 again. Because they refused to return to me. Yahweh had pleaded with them. He had sent them his prophets. He had shown his love and kindness to them. And they refused to listen. They refused to go back. And so now he brings upon them discipline. Verse 6. The sword will whirl against their cities. And I'm moving through this a little bit faster because we've had four weeks of judgment. Whirl here just refer here is actually an interesting term. It actually refers to dancing. The sword will dance in their cities. And you can kind of see the flashing of the blade moving through the city. Hosea 13, verse 16, Samaria will be held guilty. For she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. That's kind of that picture we talked about last week. Verse 6 and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. Israel placed all their trust in their fortresses, in their military. Hosea 8.14 says, Israel had forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah had multiplied fortified cities. They thought that if they just built up their military, they could prevent this judgment from coming. And Yahweh says, I'm going to demolish their gate bars. Gate bars refers to the entrances of the city. Their cities will be consumed. They'll be destroyed. And Why? because of their counsels. councils here refers to making a plan. It's used in um, Exodus 18, when Jethro goes to Moses and gives him a plan, an organizational plan. It's used in 1 Kings 12 to describe Rehoboam rejecting the counsel of his father's advisors. It's used in Psalm 33 to describe the nations and the people's planning against God. And here it refers to Israel rejecting Yahweh's plan, to seeking to devise their own. You'll remember they went back to Assyria, they went to Egypt, they tried to do diplomacy to try to avoid judgment. And ultimately their counsels, all their plans, would bring about judgment. Hosea 11 verse 7 So my people are bent on turning from me. Notice the affection there. Even in the midst of describing judgment, he calls them my people. He says they are bent on turning from me, literally hung up on backsliding. They're stuck there. It describes their nature. They have a nature that is bent toward sin, toward apostatizing. Though, uh, verse 7 again, though they call them to the one on high, none exalts him. The they here, though they call, again, refers back to the prophets. They were calling them to return to Yahweh, and they refused. Hosea 7 verse 16 says, they turn, but not upward. They run in every direction, but back to Yahweh. They look for everyone but Yahweh. And he finishes that and he says, None exalts, none at all exalts him. Literally, no one lifts him up. The term here refers to exalting or praising. To lift something up is to praise it, to exalt it. They lift up idols, they build high places, they lift up wood, stone, and gold, but none, no one lifts up, exalts, praises, thanks, or worships Yahweh. Not a single one. And that's why they're going to face judgment. He has loved them repeatedly, over over, and over again, and they've spurned him. But don't think that Yahweh is finished with Israel. Uh, Third point. Yahweh's loving heart exposed. If you look at verse 8, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's the Yahweh's question. There's more. We'll get to those in a minute. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Anybody have an answer to that question? Anybody have a reason for Yahweh to give up on Israel? I've got a whole list. How can you do this? Easy. Look what they've done. Go back to this last seven chapters. From a human perspective, this is an easy question. If someone treated me that way, I would have given up on them a long time ago. We wouldn't be talking about love anymore. You've spurned my love and kindness for the last time. I'm not going to be your doormat. What does he mean by give up on them? Verse 8 again, How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Anybody remember where Adama and Zeboim are mentioned? Someone said it. Sodom and Gomorrah. Deuteronomy 29, 23, All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and productive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adama and Zebulun, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Yahweh asked the question, how can I treat you like them? How can I wipe you out completely and forever like them? Given my love for you, Could I exterminate you the way I did at Sodom and Gomorrah? Where do these questions come from? Why even ask these questions? Seems like an open and shut case. They deserve it. Verse 8 again. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Here you get a functional MRI of the heart of God. You get to see inside. You get to see the seat of his emotions, his will, his desires. And he says, My heart is turned over within me. It's actually the same word that's used to describe the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah to turn over. This is a massive disruption within the heart of Yahweh, it's an upheaval. An emotional upheaval. And he explains it in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, All my compassions are kindled. Israel's failed a million times. They've sinned against Yahweh a million times. And you might think that all that failure, all that sin would arouse his anger, his wrath, his hatred. And yet he looks on his wayward and rebellious people and his heart just breaks. His compassion, his comforts, his kindness are kindled. They're inflamed. The term inflamed is used uh, in Genesis forty-three thirty to describe the emotions of Joseph being stirred when he finally sees his brother, Benjamin, again. The term used in 1 Kings three twenty-six. remember the two women were in front of Solomon and they were both arguing, the child is mine. And Solomon says, fine, we'll just cut the baby in half. And each of you can have one half. And the true mother of the child became emotional. She became stirred. Same word. I'll tell you what, when, my, when someone sins against me like this, it's not love and compassion that's stirred. The more they sinned, the more Yahweh's affection and love towards them grew. When someone sins against us over and over and over and over again, is it your love that's kindled for them? Or inflamed? It's what happened here with Yahweh. You might say it this way, as their sin abounded, his love and his compassion much more abounded. And because of that, verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Fierce anger here refers to the burning of nostrils. Someone gets really mad, their nostrils flare. It says, I will not execute my fierce anger or my wrath. I will never execute my anger. Why? Because beginning of verse 8, all of his compassions are kindled. All of his love, his heart is bursting with love for his people. He'll discipline them, but he'll never wipe them out completely. This is not what you would expect to hear. If you read the Mosaic Law, they deserve to be wiped out. Justice would demand they be wiped out. How can Yahweh show such mercy to Israel? And moreover, why would he? Verse 9. For I, am not, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Yahweh's reason for this? I'm God. I'm not like you. Your love is superficial. Your love is dependent. Your love is conditional. Yahweh's isn't. His love is not a payment for services rendered. Yahweh's capacity for love and mercy can never be exhausted. He is an infinite being, and all of his attributes are infinite, including his love, including his mercy. And there is no limit to his ability to love and to care for his sinful and undeserving people. You might say it this way, there's more love in him than sin in you. But notice that love is depicted within the context of another attribute. He doesn't just leave the love of God hanging out there by itself. Verse 9, the Holy One in your midst. God is loving. Yes, that is true. But just as His love is infinite, He is also infinitely holy. And the holiness of God, we talked about this in the Attributes of God class, has two parts to it. One of them is that He is completely set apart from sin. Completely morally pure. The second part, He is completely separate and distinct from His creation. He is not like his creatures. He is not like you and me. Typically, when you think of the holiness of God, you think of being in fear. You think of Peter, when he realizes who Jesus is, and he says, get away from me. You think of the holiness of God, you think of Isaiah, when he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Here the holiness of God is used as the summary of God's goodness and His kindness and His mercy. He's holy in the sense that He's not like us. His compassion and His mercy, His love are completely different from ours. When we come to Him and we recognize what we truly are, We recognize our own sinful condition. That we deserve judgment. And then we know who God is. His holiness is not what drives us away. The fact that He is separate and distinct is what draws us in to be embraced and to be loved. Yahweh here is the bright light in front of that dark backdrop. And he affirms his promises. He affirms this love with his promises. Excuse me, let me say it that way. Last point. Yahweh's loving promises affirmed. This is verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, they will walk after the Lord He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. At some point in the future, after judgment has come, Israel will repent. They'll turn back to Yahweh. And here, Hosea changes the metaphor again, and he pictures Yahweh as a lion. Now, he's done this before in Hosea 5, 14 and 15. He pictured Yahweh as a lion coming in judgment. And the lion would come and rip them apart. And that was to warn them, you're about to be in trouble. But in the future, they're going to hear this lion roar again. And then they're going to listen. And they're going to begin to obey They'll see him correctly. They'll honor him as their king, as God. And it says they will come from the west. Literally, they'll come from the sea. I think he's just using this to picture the, a direction, not really from the ocean. And that's proven in verse 11 because he continues to describe their return. Verse 11, they will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. These two verses need to be interpreted together because they're both discussing the same thing. He uses trembling in both of them. It's the same word. The same event described in verse 10 is described again in verse 11. When he says they will come, he is not emphasizing... Where they're going, or excuse me, he's not emphasizing where they're coming from. The point is not they're coming from Egypt or they're coming from Assyria. That's not a geography lesson. That's not his point. The point is not where they're coming from. The point is where they're going to. They are coming trembling. Shaking with, sometimes this is used to shake with fear. Fear. But this also refers to the movement of worship and of excitement. They will come like birds from Egypt. Hosea 7, he described them as a silly dove without sense, just kind of wandering around. Here he describes them as fluttering birds that have become excited. and their excitement, In their excitement, they rush back to Yahweh. And as they return back to Yahweh, He gives them the ultimate demonstration of the blessing, which is bringing them back to the land. When they went into captivity, they still had the promises of Yahweh. That's what this ver- these verses are for. This is encouragement for them while they're in captivity. Discipline doesn't always feel good. But it does yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Remember the promises of God when you're going through discipline. If He's disciplining you, you have two options. You can sit there and deal with the discipline or you can remember the promises and you can run back to Him and find that grace and that mercy. Because 1 Corinthians 10 describes Israel and says, Israel is a picture of you. It was given for you and I to learn something about who we are and what we're doing. And if you haven't seen yourself, I said this before, if you haven't seen yourself over the last four weeks, you need to go read it again. Any questions? Comments? brings to mind that idea that we cannot even begin to comprehend the goodness the mercy the love of God we can't even begin to understand how deep and wide it is yeah he was saying you can't understand how deep and wide the love of God is and that's true any other questions comments silence all right let's close in prayer Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you are loving, that you are merciful, that you don't give your people what we deserve. We all deserve your judgment. We all deserve your wrath. And yet, in your kindness and in your compassion, you give us love and mercy through Christ. And so we thank you so much for that. And we ask that you would uh, help us to respond to that, not in turning away from you, not in chasing after our own desires and seeing it as free grace, but that uh, we would respond rightly, that we would respond in obedience and love and return to you. And we ask that you would help us to worship you this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.